Thank you, Janet. Um, good morning. My name is Clara, and I'm an alcoholic. And I'm grateful to be sober and a proud member of the Fellowship of Alcoholics Anonymous. And I'd like to thank Liz and the committee for the honor and the privilege to be asked to come and share my experience, strength, and hope with you this morning and this weekend. Um, it's been wonderful. It always is. Um, I'm grateful to be a, a, a sober member of Alcoholics Anonymous. I love Alcoholics Anonymous. It's given me the life I never dreamed when I was doing a, literally doing a dance with death, uh, out there before I got to my first meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous. Um, I, it's been wonderful this weekend. Yeah. Thank you for your hospitality. Uh, I was born and raised in Atlanta, Georgia, and I, and I, you know, in this side of the country, it's, it's like coming home and I, just all your warm smiles and it always makes me feel the same as I stand at the podiums of Alcoholics Anonymous that I'm standing in the sunlight of the spirit. And I thank you for that. Um, I'd like to thank Jennifer and Carrie for picking me up at the airport. You know, we kind of, uh, we get these calls and we say yes and yes, I always say if I can do it. And, uh, we arrive at the, at the, at the, uh, terminal and we don't have signs that say AA on it, you know, and, uh, and sometimes the, the, the hostess to be will say, uh, well, uh, what do you look like? And I'll describe myself and they describe themselves and, and we just kind of, there's something that's that, that magnet magic that goes on between us when we look at each other. And, um, but she was very inventive. She came with a big sign, <laughs> uh, uh, with red printing that said huge lettering, and it said, Clara S. <laughs> she, <laughs> and she broke my anonymity right in the airport. <laughs> and I just loved it. I said to her, you know, why don't you frame that, and I'll take it back to L.A., and I have it in my den, I'll put, I have a lot of, a lot of, uh, you know, wonderful plaques from, you know, uh, service in Alcoholics Anonymous. And I said, I'll put yours right in the middle of the wall. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, if you're new here this morning, I welcome you to Alcoholics Anonymous. And I hope you'll keep coming back with an open mind and join us. In the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous, which is the basic text of our program, one of my favorite readings is in the back of the book is entitled Spiritual Experience. And at the end of that reading, it says, Contempt, pride, and investigation will leave a man in everlasting ignorance. So I welcome you and hope you will keep coming back. Uh, we tell our story in a general way, what it used to be like, what happened, and what it's like today. Well, uh, by the time I got to Alcoholics Anonymous, I was a full-blown Wynette. And... Um, <laughs> In Chapter 3, more about alcoholism, it describes the insane things we sometimes continue to do to keep from doing Step 1, 2, and 3. And in that list of insanities, one of them says, we switch to natural wines. <laughs> Man, I had switched a ripple. <laughs> that's, not, that's not one of your natural wines. <laughs> As a matter of fact, man, I don't even think a single grape has ever been near that stuff. I, heard it. I don't know what they put in it, but um, at the time it served the purpose while I was doing the dance. I come from the jazz world, Boston, New York, Harlem, and L.A. And uh, when you're dancing out there, uh, at the, as I was at the end of my drinking, uh, the music stops. 
and the total insanity begins. And I reached that point where I couldn't get sober and I couldn't get drunk and I couldn't stop drinking. And that is the second step, total insanity. Uh, I had lost everything. Thank you, God. I never thought I'd stand at the podium of Alcoholics Anonymous and say, thank you that you took away from me everything I wanted in order to give me what I needed. Came that time in my life when I needed to stop drinking. I needed to find a God of my understanding. I simply need to stop dying. Uh, um, my uh, ex-husband and I had moved to, to Los Angeles from Boston uh, with good intentions. And I'm not telling his story, but um, we ended up in Los Angeles uh, because I was on the run. And uh, I was always, my good intentions was to be a better parent to the little 10-year-old son who sat in the back of a, a car driving all the way from Boston uh, to, uh, to, to Los Angeles on Route 66 right in the L.A. And I, I went with good intentions when I left Boston. I said, you know, I'm going to be a better mother. I'm going to go to do those things that those nice ladies do. But I bought a case of 100% bourbon and put it in the back of the trunk <laughs> to make those changes. <laughs> and when I got there, you know, I crawled up on the, on, on, the, on the first bar stool and I come, as I said, from the jazz world. And, and uh, it all started all over again. And, and I hadn't reached that point of, of, of out-of-control drinking. Uh, I'm a real alcoholic, the kind of described in the book. I drank for years without... Never throwing up, well, hang a hangover. I was never a social drinker, but I was a heavy drinker right from the beginning. And, and it was going to be different, and we did go into a small little business that was uh, turned out to be quite successful. And I'd always been used to, to the better things of life. I grew up in Atlanta in a, in a, in a, in a family that was a marvelous uh, uh, mother and father and just wonderful Christian family. My father was very successful. We had all those outside things and they're supposed to make you fit and be somebody. I'm the youngest of seven children and I'm the alcoholic and I I, I believe I was uh, born restless, irritable and discontented right out of the chute. You know, I probably was one of the ones that could use a little drinky poo um, <laughs> in the first grade <laughs> just to get me to the second grade, you know. <laughs> But when we got to uh, L.A. and, and things got so good, um, you know, we had two ch- two other children that were born in Los Angeles, and the oldest son was like 10 years old at the time. Um, I don't know what happened. I, you know, I, that drinking, we talk about crossing the invisible line. And it started, you know, I used to start, wait for 5 o'clock. And, you know, I, through the years, by the grace of God, um, um, my AA anniversary is April the 1st, uh, 1974, I had my last drink. 28 years. <laughs> and I, 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 I started to, uh, to do those things that talks about crossing that invisible line. And, you know, I used to, all day long, I would think about the drinking. I don't know if this, you know, I didn't drink till five or six because that was a proper hour to drink. But my obsession with alcohol, with drinking, started when I woke up in the morning. And I was very busy and very active, but I couldn't wait. There was that little thing in the back of my mind that just couldn't wait till that hour. And I and I learned that through many inventories. But somehow, I, you know, the drinking started getting down to like 3 in the afternoon and then long lunch hours and, you know, the martini hours and for lunch. And then it got down to 10 o'clock in the morning. And then it got down to when I woke up. And then I'd say to myself, well, you know, it's five or six o'clock somewhere in the world. I might, you know, 
<laughs> I might as well start now. And uh, and that's how it started. But, I, you know, it took me to the bitter end. In the big book, it talks about whirling to the bitter end. Um, and there it was, and it got to be violent. And then and then, so, then I started to lose it all. And I came into this program uh, on the... Uh, uh, the uh, Internal revenue, thousands of dollars payroll on um, payroll taxes, and 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 then they foreclose on the house, and and you know I'm and uh, I'm just in, I'm in my life second half of the first step it was totally unmanageable, and I didn't think it had anything in the world to do with alcohol. You know I could think of a lot of things that had you know was causing me all this problem, people, places, and things, but 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 not alcohol. Um, so I ended up um, standing outside that house one day when it was all gone. My son was about 18 years old by the time this is all happening. Uh, I had a sister who, who was a nurse at Cedar sinai Hospital in Beverly Hills. I remember going over there and standing in, in that hospital and looking at her. And, and I always looked for people to save me. See, I was always put with the responsibility of my life in somebody else's hands. And I looked at that sister and, and I said to her, you know, all I need are two payments, you know, on the mortgage payments. You know, it's, they, you know, they won't take the house. And she looked at me with that look. And I don't know if you ever had people who truly love you look at you with that look. I could see the pain in her eyes, and I could feel it inside of me. And I didn't know what that emotion was, but I, I, did, I, I looked at her a little longer, and, and she said, uh, you know, it pains us to watch you live the way you live. And it's going to pain us even more to watch you die. I was always terrified of the word death, and I couldn't understand what she was talking. You know, I didn't know what this was about. I had no idea that I was was about to was on my way. I believe to die of this disease. Um, and she said, "We're not. I'm not signing any more checks to get you out of trouble." And I turned and I left, and I went and stood in front of that house, and there was the that older son and the two younger ones. I think Ken was at the time about twelve, and my little daughter Tina was about about eight. I had a little bag, and they'd given me 90 days to get, get out of that house, and I just couldn't get it together. Uh, you know, they just locked up the door, and I just said, okay. Uh, all my fair-weather friends were dead of this disease. Bill Wilson talked about his fair-weather friends. Bill Wilson, uh, the, uh, the co-founder of our program, and I believe that this program was divinely inspired. And he talked about his fair-weather friends. Mine were all dead of this disease at the time, and I didn't know that. Uh, and the others, I didn't, couldn't find them. You know, I used to sit in those clubs in Boston and New York and Harlem and look in the mouth of the late great legend Billie Holiday, whom I became very friend with, friendly with later. And she used to sing a song. She said, when the money is gone and the spending ends, they don't come around no more. And that's exactly what happened to me when I ended up in the ghetto of South Central Los Angeles. Uh, one last friend who was not an alcoholic gave me a little piece of paper with uh, with an address on it and um and and she had some money to pay the cab driver. So I call him, and, and we go down there, and I didn't know where I was going. I lived in Los Angeles for years. I had no idea where the ghetto was. And uh, uh, we drive in front of this little place, and uh, I take the, the, the two kids and the younger kids because the older son wouldn't go. And we were standing outside in front of that house, the 18-year-old young man with tears in his eyes, but they didn't run. I guess it wasn't macho for an 18-year-old young man to cry over a drunken mother who was beginning to wake up with strangers for the price of a drink. Um, he said, looked at me and he said, I don't know who you are. And I'm not going with you wherever you're going. I'm not going there. And he turned and walked out of my life. And my attitude, my arrogant attitude 
was, well, screw you too. But inside, you know, my I was crying silent tears, you know, about the broken dreams and the unresolved relationships. And I had no idea what it took to reach out and put my arms around that son of mine and say, but I love you and I don't understand what's going on in my life, but this is the best I could do. I'm doing the best I can. But instead, I said, screw you too, and I got in the cab. And when we drove up in front of that place, I looked at it, and and uh, uh, I went inside, paid the cab driver, went inside, and and I drew the drapes. And I'm sure, I'm sure that I was doomed to die of this disease. And um, I put on a terrorcloth robe, and I I had applied for food, I applied for food stamps and welfare. And uh, by this time, I'm wearing this bright red wig. I don't want to be identified down there, you know. <laughs> and his wig had bangs. And I used to get drunk and trim the bangs. <laughs> I'm sitting in the overstuffed chair. And you know, as I, and, I, and and reminiscing about the good old days in 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 Boston, New York, and I'm running around with the late, great legend Billy Holiday, and I'd go into those jazz clubs, you know, one after another in those days, and if we were going to drink, it was a great time to start. And then I'd, I can still see the face of Louis Armstrong up on that stage in his handkerchief, and I can hear the, I can still hear the music. And there I was, you know, I'd sit in those clubs with Duke Ellington and Lillian Horn, and I mean, I'd piled around in a, in a entourage for years, you know, in that kind of lifestyle. I know the difference today between a lifestyle and a life. Today I have a life. God's grace in the program of Alcoholics Anonymous. Far beyond any dream or any any fantasy I had sitting on those bar stools. Um, I would hear the music around, coming out of a blackout around 11 o'clock at night. And uh, my heart just pounding like a drum. And I was just always full of fear and I never knew what to do with myself but I knew the best place for me was in 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 some bar and I don't know if you guys are how many of you were bar drinkers but I'm now down in the ghetto in the sleaziest bars available in Los Angeles California and I would get dressed and hustle over there and I always like to crawl up on the end stool you know you know and, and look in that mirror and I look down and see all the other geniuses <laughs> Sitting on those stools, you know. <laughs> I don't know about you ladies, but I met a lot of out of work airline pilots. <laughs> Once in a while I'd meet a, a neurosurgeon sitting right on those stools. There was one I should never forget him as long as I live. He was very attractive, he was sitting on my left. He turned to me and he introduced himself and he told me he was a retired lieutenant colonel in the United States Air Force. I was really impressed with him because he's about 24 years old. <laughs> and he turned to me and he smiled and he said, um, I fly secret missions, baby. <laughs> All over the world. And we're sipping on a glass of 49-cent wine. <laughs> And he was a very nervous dude. He kept looking up and down the bar, you know. He said, actually, he said, I fly all over the world. I said, oh, yeah. He said, last night I flew over Russia. 
I took a sip off my wine. I looked at him. I said, I know you did, darling, because I was with you on that one. So, <laughs> in, in a vision for you, in the big book, in a vision for you, there's a, a little paragraph that says, some of us sought sorted places, looking for understanding, companionship, and approval, and I was out there looking for love. Always looking for love in the wrong places, and uh, and uh, we'd sit there and our and our, and, our, and look, all of us looking in the mirror, probably hearing like the song about Eleanor Rigby, wondering where all those other lonely people were coming from. And I would go into one of those blackouts and end up again, you know, in front of that house where they dumped me. I'm sure that's what would happen. Uh, at that awful hour of the morning, three and four and five o'clock in the morning, in tall, wet grass in a fetal position. And I, it always seemed so dark and it always seemed so cold and it always seemed darkest, you know, right before dawn. And in California, in those tall, uh, palm trees of, you know, they're night birds. They come out mysteriously in April and they go away in, in, in the middle of September. They just go away. And they come out almost in the middle, in the stroke of midnight. And I can remember so many times being in, in that grass and listening to those birds squawking to each other. Dogs traveled in, in packs in that area where I lived. And in those days, there were metal trash cans out on the sidewalk. And it would take several of those dogs to push the can over to the street. And they were all, you know, it was about getting the garbage. I could still remember the zinging noise of the lid as it rolled down the street. And I could hear my heart just pounding. And um, listening to the dogs fight over the garbage. When you live like in that kind of environment, it's a, all about it's all about survival, and everybody's down in the ghetto trying to survive. Uh, I get up off that uh, that ground, and the, the, that beautiful brown eyes of my little daughter would come into my consciousness, and I could hear her saying things to me like, "Mom, you promised me that the next time we had a PTA meeting, you were going to come." All my friends' parents show up, and you get drunk. And I would look at that little daughter, and I want to tell you, I wanted to say to her, but you don't understand. You just don't understand. When I take a drink, the drink takes me in, and I give it the power, because I can't stop drinking. But instead, I make the promises. You know, uh, I, 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 I would do the best I could, but then, you know, as I said, I'm 28 years and four months and some, some weeks sober, and I haven't been to a PTA meeting yet. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Dr. Silkworth, the wonderful Dr. Silkworth in front of the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous, says, you know, there comes a time we can't, dif- when we can't differentiate the difference between the truth and the false. You know, I'm living a lie in my life, you know, and the people on those bars just say, clear, every time, if your lips are moving, you're lying. And it was true, you know, and, and, uh, and so I get up off that ground and get into that house, rush down that hall, you know, I'm, by now I'm dying. Physically, emotionally, spiritually dying. I get to that bathroom, get on my knees, do a few chin-ups on the rims of that toilet bowl, and, uh, <laughs> Chin just sliding around on there trying to find a comfortable place to rest, you know. And it would seem to me sometimes that I was going to throw up my very soul. Did you ever come out of a blackout? I'd be sitting on the, on the floor just leaning my head on that cool porcelain and, 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 and the room spinning. And, um, and the two words that would always greet me about as I try to focus on something to slow down the spin, and it was American Standard. You know. <laughs> 
I get up off the floor, get dressed to make the run, put on my bad leather jacket, shove on my dark glasses, and had some starfire earrings that hung to my shoulders, and, and I was 65 pounds overweight, and I had on these tight jeans, and by now in my mode of transportation is a pair of gold fuzzy house slippers. <laughs> and, um, my, my big Cadillac had long been gone, and I'm, I'm wandering around in these gold house slippers, and, uh, and, uh, and I get to the front door and sneak down the, you know, the steps feeling like a thief in the night. Cross the street past three houses, get down on Western Avenue, lean on the liquor store door, wait for the man to come. And that's what it had come to. Standing outside that door, feeling that feeling it talks about in book, pitiful incomprehensible, demoralization. And it's waiting for him to get there. So, I mean, there's something about clerks in, in, in the ghetto early in the morning. Uh, they can be really cruel. You know, I mean, you know, I'm the only customer. And he's strolling there, you know, and opened up the cash register. And I'm standing there trying to be cute. I haven't been cute for a long time right now. <laughs> By now, I got wine sores all over my face. And I got fluid on my joints. And, and I'm hobbling around. And, and, um, and watch him put the change away. And he leaned on the counter and, and do the... What you have this morning, babe? Uh, well, listen, I said, uh, my usual. <laughs> I'm going to have a little ripple. If you don't have ripple this morning, I'll have some Thunderbird. And <laughs> and he said, uh, who's drinking all this ripple? And I look at him, and I get so impatient with him. <laughs> I say, I have house guests. <laughs> he said, you, you serve your house guests ripple? <laughs> He put in the paper bag and then he played with the bag at the top, you know. It's just mean, you know. I'm feeling like I'm going to self-destruct, you know. He just don't give, take it out of his hand and get out of the store, pass a little plate glass window and lean on the building. You know, my days were fine drinking it long, but no, I no longer drank out Baccarat crystal glasses. And I didn't have to worry about, you know, the openers for the wine talks and, just get back and sit in that chair here. You know, at the beginning, my kids were there. Then the grandparents later came had to come and get them because I was no longer able to function. Uh, stare out of that window. Watch the real dawn come up. Probably feeling like the man who said, I had a dream last night. That life was passing me by. No longer in the dreams of life. Sitting in the chair dying of alcoholism and didn't know it. Uh, as I said, we tell our story in a general way, but I, I was, I was born in Atlanta. My father was a full-blooded Cherokee Indian, the Cherokee Nation, born in Cherokee, North Carolina. Um, my mother, uh, was, uh, was a native of central Georgia, and, uh, my father lived on that reservation till he was in his early twenties, and he migrated down to Georgia and met my mom and had these seven kids, and, my father was an entrepreneur and an artist, and, and he was very famous in, when I was growing up in that area. Um, and uh, But I was, as I said, I was a restless era for the discontent. I don't know how when the message was being given out in that family, I always felt different. We hear a lot of, uh, of that in Alcoholics Anonymous about how we felt. I have learned a lot through inventories and writing about what went on in, at that time in my life. And what I've learned is feelings are not facts. And I have learned a lot of that was just my perception of what what life, of people around me, and life as as I understood it at the time. And I've had a, and during the step during the twelve steps of Alcoholics Anonymous, and I believe that those steps are uh, spiritual in principle. I've been able to clear up a lot of that of, of what I thought I felt. 
Um, I, and when I was a senior, I was a loner. I had a lot of trouble in Georgia. I grew up in Georgia when it was totally segregated. And I, you know, that rebellious ad- behavior, the ism that Clancy talked about, the ism, I believe, was always there. And I was always in trouble. They were always throwing me off the streetcars and the buses because I wanted to sit up front. And, you know, I was going to change the world. And, uh, you know, I've learned in Alcoholics Anonymous, I can't change anything but me. You know, everybody, I, 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 God takes, I, God, I, I do God's work, not God's job. You know, and it's just, you know, it's the way it does it. So I, you know, I, so I, um, I, I won an art scholarship when I, from Booker T. Washington High School in Atlanta, um, to the finest art school in this country, the Boston Museum School of Fine Arts, and that's where I was educated. Got a degree to be a teacher, man, and I found a drink one night, and I haven't been in a school teaching nothing yet. (laughs) But I, you know, I grew up in a very religious home, and I had a lot of trouble with God, and I, I, I was very confused. I, I, a father who lived, who believed in the in the spirits of, of the universe, who lived on the land, who believed that the, that the spirit of God was the land, and. And I had a mother who was, I don't have nothing against the religion. Today I studied the book and we agnostic. But I had a mother who had me in, in the church every time they opened the door. And I could not figure that one out. And uh, I didn't like that and I was rebellious, uh, rebellious against it. I had a real contempt for the word God. I remember sitting on a segregated train going to Boston and uh, <clears throat> giving the Atlanta, you know, <laughs> and saying I'll never put my foot in the church again. And and I kept that commitment for you know if, 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 until I got to Alcoholics Anonymous. Uh, I, when I um, uh, I was walking down the street, I never I was 19 years old. I never had a date. Terrified of men. Had a lot of fantasies about them, but really scared of them. And uh, my mother, I got mixed messages a lot about men and everything, and and I couldn't go to the movies, and I couldn't wear makeup, and I couldn't do this. Not all of that was the devil's work, and I didn't know who the devil was, but it, you know, I. So I was walking down the street one night, going to uh, had been to the movies. I started hanging in the movies. I always wanted to be a performer. I don't know how I ever got into that one because um, I can't sing and I can't dance. But I figured if I could do something up there on that stage, it would be good. Uh, so I I was I would hang out in the movies, and I'm walking down the street, and I love jazz music. And so I'm walking down the street with this friend, and this friend, I heard the music come out of the door, and I said to her, let's go, just go in there and see what they're doing. And we walk into this place, and it was dimly lit, and, and the aroma of the cigarettes and the booze, and a rather portly lady was down at the end of the bar, and oh man, I, I just, you know, they, they call that feeling living on the edge. I loved it. I walk up to the bar, and the bartender said, what are you going to have to drink? And I had no idea. Georgia was a dry state. All of the South was a drive when I grew up. There was no legal alcohol anywhere. After I got sober, I learned that they, they were illegal places, but they didn't have clubs because it was the religious belt of, at the time. And I didn't know about alcohol. i never seen it. And the bartender said, what are you going to have to drink? I had no idea. But I remember in the movies they talked about martinis. <laughs> and I was about to commit my first hip slick cool act. I lean on the bar, I look at the dude straight in the eye, and I said, we'll have a martini, honey. I said, make it dry. <laughs> I had no idea what a dry martini was. He turns around, he puts these two lovely stem glasses up there, and it looked like lemonade. Well, you know, it's hot in the summertime. It's humid down there. And my mom always had a big pitcher of lemonade in the refrigerator. And so we, I, op- I looked at it, and uh, I didn't know you sip drinks. 
I just picked it up, looked around, and I dumped it. I, I was a pig from the gate. <laughs> <laughs> Dr. Silkhurst says men and women drink essentially because they like the effect of, of, of alcohol. And I loved the way it made me feel. Empty glass. I walk out on the dance floor, and these couples would dance, and I started, got a permanent smile. I'm just smudging you, looking at them. And that night, I got some new friends. I call them colorful, but the big book calls them lower companions. (laughs) (laughs) I ended up that night, I got hooked up with the pimps, the hookers, the madams, and the bad boys. (laughs) And I learned how to walk to walk and talk to talk. I know all about street life. My favorite artist today is uh, Randy Crawford, and she sings this. It's an old song, but I'll paraphrase the words because it's certainly every time I hear them, I can I can re- look back on my life and realize they belong to me. She said, "If you are young, don't get old in the streets. Cold's going to hit you in the back. You're going to nickel and dime your life away. You look around. There's a thousand lives to play in you till you play your life away. And that's exactly what I did out there." Uh, I stayed in school, and I got all through all, all that and met this young man, and he was a very nice young man from a lovely Boston family, and they were quite successful. And and uh, we got married, and we learned to drink together, and we had a little son. I pushed that little son off on his grandparents to raise him. There's a paragraph in the book that describes the kind of practicing alcoholic I was when it says, selfishness and self-centeredness, that we think, is the root of our troubles. And it goes on in that paragraph to say we're driven people. We're driven by a hundred forms of fear, self-delusion, self-seeking, and self-pity. And that was me. It, it just nailed me all the other fears I could have named. And uh, I used to have to go and visit that little son. And uh, it, it was it was it was it was a time of guilt because I could feel it when I look into his eyes and he's they, they grow up and they look at you with that look. And he said, uh, "Mom, but you promised me the last time you came to see me that you were going to take me to the park." And I said, I know, Don, but next time. And so my best way to get out of, of the, my promises to the uh, broken promises to that little son of mine was to buy more expensive clothes and send him to better camps and, you know, and, and give him lots of nice gifts. But you see, it never took the place of, you know, of the, of, of the, of the love that I had, I knew I had for him, but I just uh, didn't know how to, how to, to tell him that. And, and uh, they grow up, and so I'm hanging out a lot about the, by this time, and this is part of my story. I'm, I'm not dropping names. A lot of you young people don't even know them anyway, but but I'm sitting on a bar stool because I'm, I'm, I'm again, restless and irritable because I want something more. I never could seem to fill up that dark hole that was downside, that, that inside that wanted more and more and more, and every time, two weeks of excitement of anything, you see, and I had to move on. And it was all that relentless search of trying to fill up something inside, you know, that I could, by God's grace, get the Alcoholics Anonymous. And, and what I've learned here in God's divine spirit, you know, has filled it up. And now the light can shine where there was always darkness. I um, was sitting there on the stool, Billy Holiday, sitting there. She's telling me about how she'd cut a record that day. In those days, they didn't have studios, and they used to, they used to cut, they used to do the records, and they used to cut them right in 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 the clubs. And she was saying to me, "You better you buy my record, babe." She's calling me, "Babe, buy my record." She said because it's going, I'm going to be a legend someday. Little did she know. And uh, uh, and this man walked up, 
And I'll describe him. He had a black hat turned down all the way around, and he had a blue top coat over his shoulders. He was so cool he couldn't get his arms through the sleeves, you know. And, and he leaned on the, and he looked at me, and I'm standing there and smiling, and, and he reached in his pocket, he pulls out ten $100 bills, and he spread it on the top like a deck of cards, and he said, spend it. Well, a thousand dollars in those days was a lot of money, and I knew I didn't believe in God, but he should answer my prayer on this one, because there he stood, you know. <laughs> and I love money, you know. And, 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 you know, the big book talks about big shotism, so right away I bought a whole club of drinking, and we were off and running, and I meant so well into the second step, now I don't even believe it when I look back on what the steps are to me today, uh, because he was the head of the mafia, of the Boston family. And now I'm riding around in a limousine with bodyguards. You know, you guys who like cars, it was one of these, it was a Mercedes that had the trunk on it with wide white wall tires. And, you know, I used to put on my lipstick by just, you know, because the bodyguards kept the car shined all day. And, and I was just nuts, you know, and by now I'm wearing all kind of wigs and I'm painting moles on my face and, and the husband's out of town in the family business, and I am just tearing up Boston, you know, and I'm in New York, and I'm in Harlem, and I'm, I'm just just going crazy. Uh, and some, one beautiful Sunday morning, probably like this morning, this out here, I looked at the sunshine this morning and wondered and started to reminisce about where I used to be, you know, over 28 years ago on Sunday morning. And there I was at this beautiful Sunday morning, being sitting in the back of that limousine, you know, being taken home, and we were all hung over. And I saw a beautiful New England church over on the corner, and, and this young families are standing outside, and they were about to cross the street. And now I don't even visit that son. I, I'm too guilty. Um, it was like a voice said to me, Clara, something's wrong with your life, and I agreed. The problem was Boston. <laughs> See, if I just get out of Boston, you know, everything else would be all right. Cousin came back home from being out of town. I said, we're going to L.A., and, I, and, he, and he, said, he said, hey, whatever. And he was doing the same things in the streets, too, so it was really, it got to be a very sick relationship, and it didn't start that way. Um, but we both drank drink to drink for all those years, and, and then we ended up in L.A., where I told you. And now I'm in that ghetto. And I'm in those sleazy bars, and now I'm, now I'm being beaten up in the streets while I'm in, in, under the influence of alcohol and blackouts. And you know, I'm, and still death is on the top of the list, and I'm terrified of living, and I'm scared to die. Uh, I ended up in, 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 in one Sunday morning, and another time, the loving God, you know, was trying to get my attention. So many times we talk about miracles here, and I've come to believe in, in, in the, in, in the power of miracles. Because they're real. And happen to those who are unafraid to believe that they're real. And million miracles happen, and I just couldn't see it at the time. We can't see till we can see, and we can't hear till we can hear. Um, I was on a Sunday morning, and uh, uh, I remember coming to a, still trying to be a party girl, you know, wine sores and all. And uh, I was being kicked in the head. My head was against the curb. I remember it was a foot, it had a, a cowboy boot on it because there was a metal cleat. That I remember. And I can remember being kicked in the head, and I can remember being kicked in uh, my ribs and hearing them cracking, and I was in and out of consciousness just from the pain. I know about pain because um, pain has no memory. I know about emotional pain, and I know about physical pain. And there I am screaming, and I came to a Daniel Freeman Hospital, 
uh, on a, that Sunday morning. It's a Catholic hospital, and um, I, uh, I am. They had me tied down to a gurney. Paramedics, people who are dedicated in saving your life. Hey, when I didn't want my life saved, how many times did I sit in the overstuffed chair? Uh, contemplating suicide only to learn that suicide is a final solution to temporary problems. The older nun wasn't thrilled with me. The police is at the foot of the bed, and, and the, the grandparents had long since taken the kids. And I, I, my, none of my family were in touch with me, and there I was alone in that hospital. This was one of the bad ones. I had been to County Journal many times. And those hospitals are not your favorite HMOs, I want to tell you. I, and the way they treated alcoholics in those days uh, for injuries, it, it was unbelievable. When I look back on it now and how fortunate people are to have treatment centers that they can can get through that kind, those kind of situations. Um, the, the older nun had on a black habit, hands through the sleeves. She had on horn rim with glasses. She's <clears> leaning <throat> over me, and she's telling me, boy, she's bawling me out about, you tell them, you know, you tell them, you tell those police, you, you, you talk to them. And what she doesn't know, I was in a blackout. I have no idea until this day, as I stand in this moment, who did it. And so I just told her to buzz off, and she just turned around, and she stormed away from me. But she went, and she stood in the door, and she turned around. It was something about the way she looked at me. She quietly shook her head like this, and felt I felt a certain feeling that I'd never felt before, because she and then she walked away. But the young nun stood there. She had on a, in probably in the early 20s, she had on a, a white habit. And she was has a, a gauze with a solution, and she was pu- putting, the, getting the blood out of my eyes. My nose was broken, and she leaned over me after the paramedics left, and she quietly said, "How did you ever let your life get into such a state?" Mm-hmm. And I looked up at this young nun. I had her eyes. Her eyes were as blue as the heavens, and I, I, I didn't know what to say to her. But something was changing inside of me. I think I was being touched by the Spirit of God at that moment because I could feel a change coming in my life. Um, they patched me up and kept me for three days. That's how they treated alcoholics in those days. They, they held you for 72 days after they put two-inch white gauze, uh, adhesive uh, uh, tape around. The first they put the gauze on the ribs, and then they walked around. These interns from USC, and they walked around, and they rolled it off the off the off the, the bowl there, and then and then they and then they it made you bend over. And so here I am, bent over. And you should, three days later, that same young nun, I think she was my earth angel. I've named her my earth angel. I've never seen her again, and I've come to believe in angels. And this young nun uh, was trying to dress me, and you should have seen her trying to get that wig <laughs> and get those bangs in the right place. And she was shifting it, and she was shifting it. And I remember she put a pat me on the head, and she said, you look wonderful. And she walked me to the front door, the spiritual being that she is, and I have come to believe that we're all born spiritual beings. And we search for our humanness in, life, in our life's path. She stood outside that door and she said, try not to drink today. And I looked at her. And I, you talk about insanity, as Dr. Silkworth explains it. I shuffled off to the nearest liquor store. Don't tell me. I can't even stand up straight. I'm in such pain. I'm bruised up. I'm beaten up. And I'm a sad human being, you know, that, 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 that didn't know what else to do but to have a drink. 
I went down to that liquor store, and it was about uh, three weeks later that I came to on a dirty floor in that morning. It was April the 9th, 1974. And I don't know what happened to me. I never heard of Alcoholics Anonymous. Um, I It was about 4 o'clock in the morning. It was dark. I remember that. And I can still remember the stench of a dirty body because I had lost the will to care. Um, mm-hmm. Thank God there were no men in, the, in that room that morning because the men in my life by this time had no uh, uh, had faces and no names. And sometimes it was that, that pitiful and comprehensible period of my life where um, where I, I, I still grieve about the price that we are, you know, alcoholism is no gender, but I can remember the price I, as an alcoholic woman that I paid. And I can remember feeling that it's, um, as I uh, got a scream, scream off that floor, screaming to a God that I didn't believe in. And what I believe happened to me was a divine intervention. Must have kissed me gently. I said, child, get off the floor. You don't ever, ever have to live like an animal again. And I came off that floor screaming, don't let me die. God, please don't let, I can't live like this anymore. Call my last friend, who is um, my friend today, who is not an alcoholic, and I said, Rachel, I think I'm going to die if I don't stop drinking, and the truth was finally out. That's what I learned about the steps in Alcoholics Anonymous. The truth, truth, speak the truth, and the truth will set you free. And I remember feeling that feeling of relief when I said it to her. She said, there's a place called Alcoholics Anonymous. She said, why don't you call them? We don't, I don't know what they do. But, you know, they, they, um, they, uh, they help each other stay sober. And how little did she know that she was, she was speaking the truth? Because that's what we do here through the grace of God is we help each other stay sober. Um, and she said, I said, well, how do I get in touch with them? She said, well, ask the operator. They must have a phone. So I pick up the phone and I call the operator and I say, you see, there's such a place called Alcoholics Anonymous. And she said, yes, dear, I'll put you right through to him. And it was central office. And a man said, good morning, this is Alcoholics Anonymous. May I help you? And I said, ma'am, my name is Claren. I can't stop drinking. He said, well, welcome to Alcoholics Anonymous, dear. He said, just don't drink today. I thought, what's he talking about? (laughs) Don't drink today. What's, you know? And he started to explain to me about the program. And he said, you know, we go to meetings. And here I got him on the phone. And I just told you my story. And I said to him, do you have meetings in Beverly Hills? (laughs) The arrogance. He said, yes, we do, dear, but you go into a meeting in your neighborhood. I said, I can do that. I can do that. (laughs) (laughs) So I just started to get dressed that morning, and I called my brother who worked for Delta Airlines at the time and LAX, and I told him, I said, I think I found a place for me, and it's called Alcoholics Anonymous. And I said, but I need a car to go to the meeting uh, because I wasn't physically able to walk anywhere, and I couldn't get on any kind of transportation. Feet were always sore. So he said, well, I said, I think I found a place to call Alcoholics Anonymous. And, he, and I told him what the man had told me. And he said, well, I work the night shift, as you know. And he said, I'll, I'll bring the car by and leave it for him. And he did that that, that morning. Um, and I started to get dressed my, that morning for my first meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous. I hope I never had that experience again. <laughs> I didn't know about detox and I didn't know the language. And I have learned that the language is indeed the language of the heart. Um, I can still hear him running up the steps, and I'm standing by the door. 
He was going to give me the keys, and he kissed me. He said, I hope that this place is going to work for you. He said, because we love you so much. And and they'd all been very successful in their careers, and they were all living the good life, and, and they grieved about what was happening to me down there in that ghetto. Uh, but they had to let me go. They had just to let me go. And uh, and he kissed me, and he said, you keep the car as long as you can. You want to use get another car. He said, as long as you want to use it. Now, I'd been down there for over two, about almost three years at that time, two to three years. And so I started to get dressed that morning because I wanted to look good. See, looking good out in the streets were always my M.O. Looking good, man. If you look good, I always had that thing about if I look good on the outside, they'll never know what's going on on the inside. So they will never know about the fear. They won't know about, you know, the pain that goes on in my life. So... Uh, I started to get dressed. I go and I look in the closet and I open the closet door. I got one dress. It's a red velvet dress. This is April now. And, uh, and I'm standing there leaning on the door, uh, for about half an hour trying to make a decision <laughs> on what to wear. <laughs> I get it out. It had wine stains on it. I clean that up, got the wig out and put it on that head form. You ladies know what that's about. And, and I clipped, I really clipped some straight bangs and um, put some hairspray on it. She looked wonderful. <laughs> and, uh, you know, my body started jerking, you know, and I'm like, I couldn't figure out what was happening. felt like my muscles were pulling. And I was about to detox for the first time uh, after drinking on a daily basis for 20 years. And I am a wreck, perspiring. I'm just, I'm just like an animal circling around, around 1 o'clock just to get out of the house and not, I was determined not to go to the liquor store because I want to say to you newcomers this morning, if, uh, if you're new here, um, you know, what, what, what I heard from a stranger on that phone that morning was hope. That's what Alcoholics Anonymous is about. It's about hope. And a stranger said to me, you don't have to drink just today. And so I was determined not to go to the liquor store. And I went over to Woolworths. There was a Woolworths not too, well, in that last ride. They burned it down, but it was there when I was over there. And, <laughs> and, and uh, I was up browsing. Just I was going from counter to counter, just shaking, just shaking like a leaf, just 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 looking. And so I, you know, I stole some eyelashes <laughs> for my first meeting of alcoholics and not, you know. And I put them under my jacket. You know, and I went back to that house. It was an 8 o'clock meeting, 7 o'clock. You know, I'm all dressed, and, and I got the wig on, and I'm really looking good. And then, uh, and uh, But the last attraction were these lashes. They come quite long. I didn't know you were supposed to trim them down to size. <laughs> they come with a little tube of glue, and it's, it's 7 o'clock, I, you know, and I'm bouncing like a motor. So I put the glue along the edge of the lash, you know, and then I grab my elbow, and I wait for an opportune moment. <laughs> And I slam it in, you know. One end is up here and one end is down there. I lean in the mirror. I'm too tired to start all over. I say, you are looking good. <laughs> I went off to my first meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous. And I remember sitting in that, in that, in that, that night. It was, a, as I walked in that meeting, it was an empty row and I sat on the end uh, seat by the aisle. And I'm sitting there on my hands just detoxing and bouncing. And they talk about the drowning person, and and I, I remember feeling that feeling that, you know, that my whole life flashed before me. And what I saw was that alcohol had stripped me of all human dignity. It had stripped me of all moral values, all family values, all of the wonderful Christian values that, you know, my loving parents had tried to teach me as I was growing up. 
Uh, they started the meeting and asked for the hands of a newcomer, and I didn't know what that was. The lady behind me touched me on my shoulders and said, raise your hands, honey, you're a newcomer. And I raised my hands. And at the coffee break, she stood there and with a little piece of paper, and her name is Carrie. She had on there Carol and a phone number. She said, you go home and you call me, and I'm going to be your sponsor. And I, she held her hands, and, and I couldn't believe what I saw when I looked into her eyes. It's like when I look into your eyes, it's like looking into the depths of your soul. And she kissed me, wine sores and all. And she said, we love you. Keep coming back. And I called her. I went, went back in. I didn't live too far from where I was. And, and I called her when I got, she read the preem to me on the phone. And that was a beginning, incredible journey. She's still my sponsor. I stand here this morning. And it's been an, it's been, it's been an incredible journey. You know, we talk about sometimes the road gets narrow, but the vision gets wider as we walk the road. And, and, uh, and, and she, we got into the steps. I got sold with 20 other newcomers in 1974. Uh, five have died of natural causes. The other, uh, 15 are still sold, but not one of us have ever gone out. Some of you may have heard of Sean A. from Canada. I got sober with Sean. I have two weeks more than he does, and I will never let him forget it. <laughs> <laughs> and we were that part of that group, and we just had, you know, we got into those steps, and we got into service. And, and you know, service has been a major part of my sobriety with, with all of us. And, um, and then, I, you know, and we started to do the steps, and I got into that fourth step. And I, I, I you know, I sat those two kids of mine down because um, I, I still, the grandparents still were keeping them. Because I had still stayed in the, in the ghetto for six months uh, because I was not employable I, and I was really sick. And uh, so, you know, when I was six months sober, my, I was I was well enough that my sponsor told me I had to get a job. I wasn't thrilled with the news because <laughs> I wasn't too keen about working. I remember she said to me, "Listen, honey, the mafia does not take care of you anymore. We are self-supporting through our own contribution. You get a job." And so I did get a job. I got a job as a waitress, and um, and I'm grateful today that I got that, that they, they 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 that couple kept me on. I was had no experience. I was a terrible waitress. I spilled a lot of coffee on a lot of people. Had a bad attitude and um, never got any tips. Could not believe it. Nobody would ever tip me. And um, and now I'm just used to running around with the mafia. In those days, I used to tip a hundred dollars to bring me a cup of coffee. You know, and nobody tipped me. So I was in a meeting complaining about this one night. And this old timer came out of the back of the group and he put his arm in, around me after he said the amen from the Lord's prayer. He said, Clara, please come down off the cross. And um, <laughs> he said, honey, we need the wood. Uh, <laughs> and I stopped whining. <laughs> uh, but it got better. I made my mess to the two younger kids. I sat them down and, and told them I was so a member of Alcoholics Anonymous. We were never going to have to live like that again. That older son who walked away from me in front of the house, um, I had gone into the movie industry, and he'd become quite well-known as an actor. And he had no contact with me for like the first three years of my sobriety. He walked When he walked out of my life, he walked out. And then he, and he, he was working at doing some stage, legitimate stage work in New York. And he um, uh, started working for ABC Television. And um, he was doing very successful. And then he came home when I was three years old. And I remember how painful it was. And he came home. He was a wonderful young man. And... And I took him in a room and I sat him down and this is what I said to him. I said, you know, Brent, I said, I'm a sober member of Alcoholics Anonymous. And I said, when we stood in front of that house, 
And this is part of my doing my steps in that fourth and the eighth and ninth step. I said to him, you know, um, you were absolutely right when you said that I was never there for you. I said, but what I couldn't explain to you is that I loved you and I always did, but I've never known how to, to express any, any emotion of love. I said, because I was always so self-centered and it was all about me. And I said, and I want you to forgive me that, that I, that we had to go through, I had to bring you, you know, in our relationship, you know, uh, growing up that I was never there for you. And, uh, he looked at me and he said, mom, he said, that was yesterday. We don't have tomorrow. He said, let's start today. And in the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous, in the family after, you know, we, the family came together and we've all grown and we continue to grow. Um, that it, it was, it was painful, but it was the, it was the, I've learned from my sponsor, in order to get through the pain, we have to do the things we fear and dread to do the most. We have to do it whether it's pain gonna be painful or not. It's the only way I'm gonna get to the other side of it. Uh, we got on, I went back into, um, my business, that business I drank away, and that's what I do today. I've had my company now for 24 years. Uh, what I do is I, um, I have a, a property management and maintenance company. I have I have uh, contracts to the homes of the rich and the famous, all the movie stars. I do their homes, and I and I have crews of people that work for me. Uh, I have a contract at, at, at US, USC, uh, UCLA, and I do all summer. That's what we do. We we clean the, the uh, dormitories, and and uh, and you know, it, it has nothing to do with success. I got to tell you, you know, the, the things, I have everything in my life today that I used to sit on bar stools and dream about. And, you know, and, and all of those, the money I had then didn't, 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 didn't keep me sober. You see, but my success today is by the grace of God and Alcoholics Anonymous and living the life I live, being of service to God and to my fellows. That's the only success I've ever known. And I hope it continues with my, for me for the rest of my life, one day at a time. Um, uh, Things got better. Um, I sponsored a young woman, Rita. I mean, she's about eight years old when drugs had come out and, and onto the streets, you know, in, in that period of my, uh, in my, uh, uh, you know, in my sobriety. Uh, and um, Rita uh, came down with HIV. Then she uh, went into full-blown AIDS, and she was eight years sober. She, she was just a wonderful young woman. And I remember she, we heard in, in the group that she was, you know, she was dying. And she'd moved down to one of the beach areas, and uh, I went down there one morning, and I was sitting across from her because I was doing my inventory on fear at the time. And I looked at Rita, and I said, Rita, how do you feel about death? And she looked at me quietly, and I could look into her eyes, and she said, well, death is not the greatest loss in life. The greatest loss is dying inside while you're still alive. I remember how that just blew me away. Because I remember how I died sitting in the back of limousines and how I died with the rich and the famous and how I died when there was nothing, you know, I could feel nothing inside of me. All I could feel, see was what was outside of me. My son was, it was working, as I said, at ABC at the time. He, um, was working with the news anchors because my son had traveled a lot in the theater work and he'd done some work in Japan. And he'd learned to speak Japanese fluently, and uh, he was uh, lived in India for about a year on a on a fellowship for, for the theater arts. And now, he, because of his knowledge of languages, he was working with the now still big anchors at the six o'clock news. 
And he was at a time, I don't know if any of you guys uh, know about Studio 54. You've probably read about Studio 54. And then that's when drugs were really out on the street, and he got involved in that. And he was with the celebrities of the time, and, and it turned out he got into drugs. Might have been alcohol with the same kind of lifestyle. And he um, was shooting cocaine. He used to brag about, you know, how it's piled up on the back of the toilet seat and toilet bowl and and it was all so grand and nobody knew anything about it in those days. Uh about AIDS and I remember he after it was um his contract was over, he came back went back came back to Los Angeles and and uh we had had developed a wonderful friendship that we time through the years and and it just had been we you know, as a family, it just had been absolutely wonderful. We'd come together and and then he met a nice young lady, got married, and uh, they had a little son, and they moved up to around San Francisco, and he was teaching theater arts in the um, at the college level, and the marriage didn't last, and it broke up, and uh, and my now daughter-in-law have a wonderful relationship with her, and my little grandson Aaron um, moved back to the Los Angeles area, and my son stayed there, and he called me one day, he said, Mom, he said, um, you know, he said, I'm not feeling well. And I went to the doctor today, and he said, uh, they said I've got eight, I'm HIV positive. And I did exactly what you told me to do. God grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, the courage to change the things I can, and the wisdom to know the difference. And he said, but I'm feeling okay, and he said, and I, I you know, I can take care of myself. And then that time comes and I can't, I can't, I'll, I'll call you. And I remember getting on a plane and, you know, I, I can, I can just, my time is my time in my own company and I could, I could leave. And I, I remember going to San Francisco and walking around with my son, my arms around that son. And I remember what it was like, you know, when we, when we didn't have that kind of relationship. And thank God for these steps. And if you haven't done them, do them. Because what I've learned is life is brief. It's very fragile. And I'm so glad that I took the opportunity to do the steps as my sponsor had me do them, 1 through 12 in that order. Um, and then, you know, 19 months later, that son called me, Mom, I'm too sick to take care of myself, and uh, I'm coming home to die. And I cannot tell you, I didn't know, I know about physical pains being beaten up in the streets, you know, by strangers under the influence of alcohol. But I've never in my life knew that I would experience that kind of pain. I said, son, come home. You know, it's like the part, so I, you know, I have a place for you. And my, I'm a, I'm a total believer in sponsorship and service and I have panels. I have, still have panels to the prison system and I call, uh, I call my sponsees and my sponsor and a lot of the old timers and some of you may remember uh, you old timers remember Alabama Carruthers and they were all, I, I know Peggy and them do, and, and they were all there. And I want to say to the newcomer, you just don't have to do anything alone. There they were. This son came home and I spent hours and many days for almost a year. And they didn't know anything about, uh, AIDS at that time. And there was no medication. He, um, 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 uh, there was no medication, so I watched him go from 175 pounds to 99 pounds. And they, every day, you know, and that, watching that pain. And then came that, um, that morning, you know, he'd done a lot of work for you younger ones will know 
the Grateful Dead, and he'd done a lot of, of lyrics. He'd written a lot of stuff for them. And when I'm heard, he was dying. He, and he sent some uh, some um, lyrics and some music, and we we had it Xeroxed, and my sponsors and all of us were around, and, and we sang on that morning. It was 10:15 on a Saturday morning, and that rasping sound of death. I remember picking up a piece of paper. And in order to relieve the pain, there was a yellow pad on the on the nightstand, and I wrote, God, a letter, not a note. Thank you, God, you used me as a channel to bring your, your child into this world. Forgive me for any pain I caused him. But you've taken him to a better place, you know, where there's no more crying, no more dying, no more pain. And I've lost a lot of all, five members of my family in the last six years. And a lot of friends and Alcoholics Anonymous, a lot of the old timers. And I pray that all of their souls rode the wings of angels. Higher place. No more crying, no more dying, and no more pain. And it's all been a wonderful journey. I watched when I was five years sober, watched my little, that little daughter. I couldn't get to her, her, her PTA meeting. The grandparents sent her for the training, became the first black professional ice skater in the ice capades with Dorothy Hammer. And it was wonderful to take all my AA buddies down uh, to the I, to 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 in 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 Los Angeles to the arena, you know, and see that her out there. And and today, you know, she's married, happily married, beautiful family, wonderful career, and her husband. She's very very, you know, it's a wonderful family. I have a little granddaughter. Her name is Nicole. Uh, that other son, you know, he, he attempted suicide when I was seven years sober. We don't drink no matter what. I'm a double winner because I'm also a member of Al-Anon. My sponsor sent me to uh, Al-Anon at the end of my first year to be a part of the family after, and on how and and, and learning to to um to, uh, to to not make it easier, but to learn more about the family after it and making those amends. Um, uh, I was uh, uh, he was he wouldn't do he wouldn't go to school, wouldn't go to work, but you know wouldn't do any of the above. And so, so I came home one day and he's drunk again. And then I said, hey, you know, my, I said to my sponsor, what do I do? She said, put him out the house. I said, I can't do that. You know, and then I can't, you know, I kept fighting. And finally one day I came home and I prayed. I always, I believe in the power of prayer. I said, God, when the moment is right, you show me. And the moment was right. And I can't put him out and lock the door. And, you know, he stood on the front porch crying. And I, and I took my keys and, you know, and, he went out there and he said I was out in those streets for a long time, three years. And then he, he OD'd and he attempted suicide and he ended up in the hospital. He came to AA and he was sitting around for, you know, like 10, 12 years. And then about eight years ago, he stopped going to meetings and he was very active. He got, he, you know, he's doing his thing and he got busy. You know, there's something about getting too busy when you get sober and, you know, and, and, and start enjoying the gifts because he'd gone to the university and he was doing well and, you know, and I want to tell you something. When you get too busy, you know, that you forget the giver. You know, the gift's going to be taken away. And here he was, August, yesterday, a year ago, uh, he went out again, except, except this time on drugs. Becoming an intravenous drug user. He went out the first time on alcohol. And now he has full-blown AIDS. Now tell me. He's in a treatment center as I stand here this morning. God, grant me the serenity to accept the things that cannot change, the courage to change the things that can, the wisdom to know the difference. Tell me the odds of that. But you know, it's all in God's hand. I'm given the gift 
show up, suit up and show up and share my experience, strength, and hope with you this morning. I do God's work, not God's job. Thank you for having me. Thank you.